Good morning. Uh, as always, it is uh, great to see you guys as we get together here. Um, every Sunday, I know for a lot of us, we've we missed getting to see each other last Sunday. So uh, it's always good to be back with my uh, family of believers here. Hope you guys had a great spring break. Those of you that uh, had a spring break, I know I was up in Buffalo, New York. Yeah, we, we had a great time up there. Yeah, and uh, you should be happy to know our church plant up there is doing well. They were really encouraged uh, by getting to just have us up, uh, up there and love the campus and do a lot of evangelism. Um, I haven't heard too much about the Memphis trip. How was the Memphis trip? Good. It's good? Okay. Good. So it seems, seems like that was a good experience too. Um, but yeah, it, it's great to have uh, at least a lot of our, our family back together here again uh, this Sunday. If you've been with us uh, this semester, then you know we've been doing this series called uh, Kingdom Culture. And if you are new to us, I want to let you know we've been doing this series called Kingdom Culture. Um, and, and what I mean when I say we're doing a series is, is uh, we've just had a uh, run of sermons together that are all kind of examining this same topic of what does life look like in the kingdom of God. And when I say kingdom of God, I mean quite simply a kingdom where God is king where people live with him as the highest authority in their lives. They live obedient. They live in line uh, with his will. And this is something, this kingdom of God, that is already here to some degree, but it's not yet fully here. You see, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And we saw that uh, everywhere Jesus went, uh, earth started to look a little bit more like heaven. Right? Like people started to be healed of diseases and people would repent of sin and uh, there, there was restoration. There were even times where, where people moved from death to life, both, both spiritually and even in uh, Lazarus' case and in Jesus' case, even physically. Uh, so we, we see this idea of that the kingdom of God is kind of breaking in and, and uh, yet we see that it's also not fully here. Uh, we still live in a world that looks very different. Uh, from a world where God would be complete king with, with uh, everyone living in line with his authority, right? There's still a lot of sin. There's still a lot of brokenness. Uh, there's still this waiting and this yearning that we have for God to come and bring his kingdom in fullness. And that's actually something that Jesus taught us to pray. I love the fact that women are going to be doing that, uh, that thing, diving into the Lord's Prayer. It's actually part of the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, teach us, God, like, let, let your kingdom come here. Let your will be done here on this earth so perfectly and obediently that it's the same as the way that it's carried out in heaven. And so when we talk about kingdom culture, that's what we're talking about, this culture of, of being a people that live fully in line with God's will, and that creates an incredibly beautiful society. <clears throat> this is, of course, not the, the culture that we live in in a lot of ways right now. Uh, the culture that we live in <clears throat> oftentimes has points of tension with the culture of the kingdom. It's not that everything about our culture is wrong or evil or bad. There's some things about it that are fine and even good. But there are plenty of points where they conflict with one another. And we've seen this clash over the course of this semester as we've talked about the way that we view the Bible and, and moral authority. We've uh, seen it in the way we view commitment, honoring others, <clears throat> pursuing unity, living a disciplined life, uh, how we view risk. How, how we treat and view sex, rest, and the life of the unborn. And so as we continue on in the series today, we're going to be examining what God's Word teaches us about money and how that should be viewed and handled in the kingdom of God. Now, this is obviously another massive topic that has a huge impact on our lives. 
you think about it, money has an incredibly powerful influence on our lives. Think of how much time you are going to spend working over the course of your adult life. Now think about the main reason that most people even go to work in the first place. I hope that you guys all get awesome jobs that you love and you find purpose in. And maybe my friend John that was here just spoke, maybe he can help you with that. Um, but, but even if you have a job like that, still one of the major reasons that you're going to be going to work is because it's a means of financial provision. It's something that we need. And massive amounts of time are spent pursuing money. And to some degree, it's necessary. But if you're going to put 40 or more hours in a week every week for your adult life or most of your adult life, It's important that you have a biblical view of money and a good understanding of how you should handle it as a Christian. So I don't know that I'll be able to to fully do this in the amount of time that I have this morning, but I hope that I can get you started on the right track and that this sermon will be enlightening and helping you understand how to view money in God's kingdom and how to find contentment in a world that's obsessed with wealth. I'm going to specifically show you the contrast between God's kingdom and our own culture when it comes to money in four areas. And that's the source of money, the authority over money, the purpose of money, and the perception of money. So let's pray and then uh, we'll dive in. God, we love you a ton. Um, I just thank you that you're worthy of our worship that we can come together and uh, sing songs to you. And, and like you're, you're, just, you're worthy of writing songs about and singing them. You're, you're worthy of us um, laying down our own lives, denying ourselves, and, and choosing to follow you instead, God. Lord, I thank you that you're a good God who gives us good commands. God, we just uh, I confess, I confess personally, Lord, I need your wisdom. Like, I don't know everything. And I thank you for the guidance that you give us and the way that you help us to see a way of life that's better than the one that we would come up with on our own. And so God, I I, uh, just ask that you'd be with us this morning as we dive into this topic of money, that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to to both think and feel the way that you do about this resource that we call money. Um, So we love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And uh, we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so I was talking about how I'm going to really contrast uh, our culture with the culture of God's kingdom in four major areas when it comes to money. And I want to start with how we view the source of money. This is kind of a a foundational thing. Where uh, does money come from in the first place? You know, years ago, I was on vacation with my family. Uh, We would do this thing where my my parents and my brothers and their wives and their kids and all of us, like we all go down to this beach vacation in uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama. It's a great time. And uh, one of my brother's sons, I think he was about four or five years old at the time, I I figured it was a fun opportunity to get to spend more time with them. And uh, if you don't know me, I graduated uh, college with a degree in um, education. I was going to be a social studies teacher. And so that includes not only history, but also like economics, psychology, sociology. So I kind of like economics. And uh, I had recently been thinking a lot just about like, this nature of where, what is money? Like, where does it come from? You know, I've been looking into how, how do we understand how the whole financial system works, how the money supply is controlled since it isn't backed by gold. You know, things that a four or five-year-old would totally be interested in. Um, so, so anyway, I, I decided to, to ask my little nephew, Hunter, uh, what, what his take was on this. We were out at uh, dinner at this kind of like beach place that ki- the kids could kind of run around or whatever. 
And uh, my nephew ran up to my mom and asked her for money for something. I don't know what it was he wanted. Probably go buy a drink or something. Not, a, not, not an alcoholic drink. Um, <laughs> and, and so I, I just asked him, I was like, Hunter, where do you think money comes from? And uh, being a little kid, he actually had a really brilliant and simple answer. He just looked at me and said, Grandma's bag. <laughs> Which for, in many ways was, was true. I couldn't argue with that, right? He, he had a, a simple view of the source of money. He wasn't interested in tracing its origin back any further. He didn't really care how money got in the grandma's bag uh, as long as it came out of that bag and into his hands. Um, and I think that most people in our culture view money with the kind of childish simplicity that my four-year-old nephew did that night on the beach. You see, in our culture, it's popular to believe that the source of your money is you. You have money because you go out and you work hard for it. And this belief isn't technically wrong, right? Just as my nephew's answer about grandma's purse isn't wrong, it's just simplistic. It fails to recognize that other things had to be given to you in order for you to even be able to have money in the first place. Like first God had to create a world, then he had to create you. He had to give you the body and the abilities that you use to work. He had to create the person that employs you or the customers that buy your product. There's so much that we need God to give us before we can have any shot at actually being able to make money ourselves. And you know, this might seem like it's not even worth saying because it's so obvious. And like, yes, it is obvious, but it isn't always acknowledged. And remembering that God is actually the source of our provision rather than ourselves has a legitimate impact on your life. You see, if you are the sole source of obtaining money, then that can result in two very negative consequences that are pretty different from each other. One potential consequence is that you're going to be really stressed out about money. If everything depends on you, and you lose your job or your ability to work for some reason, then you might think that you're in a hopeless situation. <clears throat> you become mentally consumed by anxiety and concern about how it is that you're going to be able to take, take care of yourself. Now, there's no doubt that you do have a responsibility to address these things. But that's different from being worried about it. When you remember that God is the ultimate source of your provision, you can chill out a little bit. And we don't need to be so financially stressed. Financial stress is such a major part of, I feel like it's the American experience of life, I feel like includes so much financial stress. And God doesn't want us to live that way. Look at these words of Jesus here, helping us remember who our actual provider is. Matthew 6, 25 to 33, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They, they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When you understand that God is actually the source of your money, like he's actually the one that provides for you, do you see that the, the way that that starts to eliminate so much of the stress and burden that we carry that God doesn't actually want us to carry? Now, I'm going to talk about laziness later. Don't worry. Don't jump ahead. But just like th- there is this aspect of like understanding, man, God is ultimately the one that cares for me. He knows how to provide for the birds and the flowers. Don't you think he's going to take care of me? He doesn't want our minds to be anxious and overly consumed with the stress that can come from thinking that we alone are the source of being able to get money. And you know, the, the, other, the other problem that we can fall into, aside from stress and anxiety, if we view ourselves as the lone source of money, is pride. Okay, so maybe if you're on the side where it's like, you're killing it. You end up doing really well. You have a super successful business. You're making tons of money. You're extremely financially secure. Um, this can very easily lead you to a place of pride, thinking that it's purely by your own, uh, your own talents and your own abilities that you've done everything. And I'm not discounting the fact that maybe you have worked really hard and you are brilliant and you've done a lot of great stuff to make that happen. But still, may you be humbled by knowing the fact that God is the one that gave you all of those abilities and that you've just done a good job leveraging them. There's nothing that we're able to do aside from God giving us the power to do it. Look at what James says. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Man, may we be people that, that learn. We are, are so much at the mercy of God in what we're even able to do. Like, money doesn't just come from us. Yes, we have to work for it, but ultimately God has to be the one that provides for us. And so, the, uh, man, the, the way that our culture views self as a source of money can relate to selfishness, it can, uh, can relate to anxiety, can relate to pride. But with God, he frees us from that kind of stress, and he also humbles us. You know, another area where our culture and, and God's kingdom's uh, culture clash over the view of money is when it comes to it, who has authority over it. Like, who owns the money that you have? Who has the authority to make decisions about how you use your money? Now, in some senses, that's kind of a strange question, right? Like, I'm literally saying your money. It's like I'm answering the question by asking it. But I, I just have to ask it that way because that's the way that we communicate. And we call things ours, and again, to some degree, in the most simplistic view, they are. But just like the question of where money comes from, the question of who actually owns it has a deeper answer as well. And how you view the source of money will likely also dictate how you view the answer to the question about ownership. Our culture says that your money is your money. You worked hard for it. In some cases, maybe you were given it to you, but whatever, it's your choice what you want to do with it. And from a legal standpoint, that's true. But the Christian should see that no one other than God actually owns anything in the truest sense of the word. Ultimately, God is the owner of everything. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He created everything. He has ultimate authority over everything. There's nothing that you own, not even your own body. Like he literally creates 
everything and owns everything, even the people that dwell in the earth. That includes you and me. So when we say that we own something, what we really mean is that we steward something. The definition of a steward is a person who manages another's property or financial affairs, one who administers anything as the agent of another or others. Any possession that you think you own, you are actually a steward of. And God has given you the responsibility to manage it well. Okay? That, that, that everything you got, that your, your money, your possessions, even your own body, like you are a steward of that, and God is ultimately the owner. Uh, the reality of God's ownership is true regardless of whether or not you are a Christian. But the Christian especially should be someone that realizes this and lives accordingly. You know, this steward mentality rather than the mentality of the owner is a major part of the kingdom culture. Look at what Jesus said. He said this, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. When you become a Christian, you have to understand you're giving up ownership of everything that you have to God. Now, like I said, in the truest sense, he already owns it. But, but even in the way that you're thinking, you, you, you move your thinking from thinking, I have authority to make all of these kinds of decisions about my money, my possessions, my time, all this kind of stuff. And you shift into this idea of that my life is not my own anymore. I've given up all that to Jesus. You come in line with this idea where Jesus said, anyone who wishes to be my disciple has to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We, we step down from acting like we're Lord of our own lives and make him Lord over our lives. You know, Jesus, I don't think, is here saying that you, you don't, can't have any ownership in the sense of like you literally have nothing to your name, okay? I think the disciples at the very least were wearing clothes when they were, were walking around with Jesus. But there's a realization that as a follower of Christ, you don't actually have ultimate authority or ownership over anything. It all belongs to God. And so everything that you go and you work hard for, and I hope you guys do work hard and, and, and make money, but know that that is at God's direction of how you will use that. Your house is not your house. It's, it's God's house that you steward. Your car is not your car. It's God's car that you steward. Your, your bank account is not your bank account. <clears throat> it's God's bank account that you steward. This is a, a really, like, this is a life-changing type of of thinking. I was like, just even this alone right here, if you can get this mentality, it will make a big difference in the way that you make your financial decisions. Because now whenever you make a financial decision, you're first thinking about how God wants you to use your money rather than how you want to. Because a steward and an owner act differently, don't they? Like if you owned a vacation home down in Florida and uh, you got tired of the paint color or something like that and you wanted to change it, like what would you do? You'd probably go and just paint, you'd paint it different. You wouldn't have to talk to anybody about it, right? Except for maybe your wife if you co-own it with her or something. But like, if I own a vacation home in Florida and I allow you to go use it and you go down and you say, man, Grant has really bad taste. I hate the paint color here. <laughs> what would you do? You wouldn't go and just grab a paint roller and go to town because you understand that you don't own that. If you cared enough, you would ask me first, hey, Grant, can I bless you by repainting your house? <laughs> right? But you would consult me first because you know that I'm the owner of it. And, and this is how we have to use our finances and our, our possessions is realize, hey, I, I need to be in step with God and consulting him about the way that he wants me to manage all the resources that he's given me. When we view money through the lens of an owner, it can easily result in greed and selfishness. Because we think that we can use it all for our own ends. 
You become self-focused in making financial decisions. But the Christian who has the steward mentality has a life that results in generosity and selflessness. Why? Because you're God-focused in the way that you're making your financial decisions. You come to see every resource that you have as a means to love God and love people. Because those are the things he cares about, right? Jesus summed it up for us. What's God care about most? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the kind of initiatives that you can trace to that. That's how your money should be used. You know, let's move on to talking about the way our culture and the kingdom culture uh, differ with regards to the purpose of money as well. We've seen how they clash in source and ownership, but why is it that we need money in the first place? What is the purpose of it? Why do we spend so much energy pursuing it? Now, money is necessary for a lot of things. And in the kingdom culture, it is simply a means to an end. It's a tool that can be used either for good or for evil. And, you know, we do have a lot of responsibilities in life that money is able to help us fulfill, right? The, The first and most basic is literally providing for yourself. Biblically, if you have the ability to work, you have the responsibility to take care of yourself. You should not just be mooching off of other people. Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 10 to 12 says this, Even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. All right, Stop trying to eat other people's bread if you have the ability to, to work for it yourself. Uh, first and foremost, you, you guys, if you're able-bodied, you, know, you have a brain that, that is, you know, works well and is able, you're able to, uh, to, to get a job where you can provide for yourself, you need to exercise that ability, okay? It's not acceptable for Christians uh, to be lazy, doing nothing. Um, and when possible, we want to try to avoid being a burden on other people. Money is something that helps us do that. Uh, we also have a responsibility to provide for our families, okay? In First uh, Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy and trying to help him understand how to care for these widows uh, that they have in the church. And this is what he says in First Timothy 5, 3 to 8. Honor widows who are widows indeed, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return for their, to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and, has, and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We have a responsibility also to care for our families. Here, when Paul is helping Timothy, understand how to treat the widows in the church. Basically, uh, you think of an, an elderly woman uh, who has no children, no grandchildren. She has no family left to provide. It's like, how is she going to make a living? Well, that's where he says, hey, the, the church needs to be caring for these people. But before the church cares for them, you need to check with their families first. Their children and their grandchildren have a responsibility to invest back in them, right? To make a return to their parents, he says. Um, 
If, if you are unwilling to care for the people in your own family that have legitimate financial needs, uh, th- then you are neglecting a responsibility that you have as a Christian. Now, I know that uh, this can be a messy subject sometimes, and, and there can be difficult, uh, specific questions about this. I can't get into every single one of those things uh, here in a sermon context. But if you have questions about that, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. But in general, as a believer, you have responsibility to provide for yourself, and you have responsibility to help provide for your family. You also have a responsibility to help provide for others who need help. In Ephesians 4.28, Paul wrote, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Isn't that interesting? Don't steal anymore. So, yes, once again, stop. When you steal, you're a burden on other people. We're not supposed to be a burden on other people. So you have that first responsibility to provide for yourself. But... Not only that, you should work, why? So that you have something to share with the one who has need. There are people that don't have the same ability to go and make money the way that you do. Um, be it through disability or you know, mental illness or, or just old age or something like that. There, there are people that don't necessarily have the same kind of opportunities that you do if you are able-bodied and, and able to, to work. And so one of the responsibilities that we have is, as we become people that are able to make that money is like, we should have it not just to provide for ourselves and families, but also so that we can have something to share for those that have legitimate needs. And uh, f- finally, an- another thing that we can do with money is, uh, a- is a great tool is provide funding for ministry. Uh, Luke 8, 1 to 3 says this, Speaking about Jesus, soon afterwards he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means." All right, so Jesus was doing work, okay? He, he was not being lazy. He wasn't being a burden to other people, anything like that. He wasn't just expecting to sit around, be a busybody, and have other people take care of him. But the work that he was doing wasn't exactly financially lucrative, okay? And, and so what happened? He, he, yes, he's God, but he's God in the flesh. He still has a body that, that needs clothing and food and, and these kind of things. And so what happened? There were people that were going around and were literally using their private means to help financially support the needs that Jesus and his companions had as they devoted themselves full-time to ministry. And there are plenty of situations uh, where we still find ourselves in similar things like this today. I don't know what God is calling each of you into. Some of you, you may be called into full-time ministry. And if you are, there may be some other means that you need to be able to help support that because it's not something that is great at generating income in and of itself. There's also nothing wrong with being bivocational. Paul had seasons where he did both of those things. Sometimes he'd preach exclusively. Sometimes he'd work as a tent maker and also do ministry. Um, but, but if you are a person that's called into the workforce, which the majority of you probably will be, um, that, then one of the great opportunities that you have is to use the money that, that God is empowering you to make to be able to fund initiatives that are continuing to help the gospel move forward. In all those things, you see that money is being used as a tool to love people. It's being used in line with the way that God has called us to live, to love him and to love others. It's a means to an end, but it's not an end in and of itself. And unfortunately in our culture, I believe that money is oftentimes more of a goal than it is a tool. People want to be rich, 
Not because they want to use money to love God and love others, but because money itself is something in which they place their identity, their joy, and their hope. You see, with identity, a lot of people, I think money itself, like being rich is a goal just because of the status that it brings. And this comes from an insecurity that we have about our own value. If you have a hard time seeing the value that you have as a human being that's loved and made in the image of God, one of the things that you can do to try and uh, bolster yourself in that area of insecurity is make a bunch of money so that you can put a number on your net worth and help people see how valuable that you are. And this is so toxic, right? Like that, that's such an unhealthy way to live, to, to think that if you uh, can just have enough money that, that somehow that will show how valuable you are as a person. Money is a terrible thing to be placing our identity in, but unfortunately, many of us fall into it. A lot of us also look to money for joy or, or satisfaction in life. Now, money is able to deliver a lot of pleasures that life has to offer. Like, it gives you access to a ton of stuff. Um, I like to listen to country music sometimes, some country music sometimes. Um, and there's a country song about how money can't buy happiness, but it can buy you a boat, a truck to pull it, and a cooler full of beer. Um, <laughs> Right? And, and I mean, this is the reality. Money is <clears throat> something that's able to, to get you a lot of stuff that will help you to enjoy life. It can get you a nice house in a nice neighborhood with a nice car, put nice food on your table. And, and, and pleasures aren't inherently bad, okay? Like, I'm not telling you that, that you can't have any of those kind of things inherently. But you do need to pray about your purchases and view them through the lens of a steward, Okay, there isn't some sort of like legalistic plan that I can lay out for you for exactly how it is that you're supposed to spend every dollar that you have. I, don't, I, I can't give that to you. But I, I do know that that's your responsibility to work out with the Lord and, and legitimately lay your heart before him and examine, am, am I looking to, for money to bring me joy and happiness in life or am I finding that in the Lord? And does that, that, that joy that I find in the Lord free me up to use my money in a more productive way? I do know that if you're looking for money for satisfaction, it's not going to be able to do it for you. <clears throat> There's a much greater path to joy, and it comes through knowing Jesus, as joy is literally part of the fruit of the Spirit that he produces within us. You know, and finally, I think one of the other things that our culture looks to money for is, is hope or security. And, and this probably hits home with, with this crowd, I think, more than anyone, this idea that, <clears throat> man, I just want to be secure. I want to be stable. And I get that, like I, I want that too, and, and, and there's some positivity to that. Like I don't think it's valuable for us to constantly be um, worrying about where our next, uh, how we're going to pay rent or where our next meal is going to come from or anything. But I, I do want to let you know that money itself is not really able to bring, bring true stability in life. <clears throat> I think of what uh, Paul wrote to, to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 6, he said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of that which is life indeed." Even for the rich, right? there's un uncertainty in riches. There's so many things that life can throw at you that first off, fortunes can be lost quicker than you think. But there's also a lot of problems that can come your way that money really still isn't the answer to. It, it can't stop relationships from deteriorating. 
You know, it doesn't, doesn't provide security for your soul. The most important things that you need safety, security, and stability in are not going to be able to give, be given to you by money. They're able to be given to you by Jesus. And so Paul says, man, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. He's the one that richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And you know, this kind of leads me to the last uh, area of class that I want to talk about, which is just the perception that we have of money. <clears throat> I believe our culture has a very, is very blind in the way that it perceives money, whereas the Christian is called to have a very balanced view of it. For the most part in our culture, people are blind to the dangers of money. I would say it's basically universally desired. People pretty much always want more of it. And, and there can be good reasons for it, right? Like money isn't evil in and of itself. It can be a great tool. I just highlighted a bunch of great things that you can do with money. But the Christian does need to have a balanced view of money. Yes, it can be used for good, but man, oh man, it can also have some very negative effects on your life that you need to be aware of and that you need to guard against. It's kind of like the internet, right? Like it's an amazing tool that can be used for a lot of really good stuff, but man, oh man, there's some bad stuff uh, that it can lead to as well. And you need to be vigilant over your heart and mind and seeing the, kind of the way that it impacts you. I love the balanced uh, mentality that we see about money in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. You see, the author here realizes that there is a legitimate danger, not just to too little money. I think most of us are aware of that, right? We don't want to be people that are stealing to try and make ends meet. But there's also a legitimate danger to having too much money. And, and, and he's, he's, once again, he's not saying you, you can't be rich, but he personally is saying, I don't want this. Why? Because I don't want to be at a spot where I, I'm so rich and so comfortable in this world that I literally like, forget who God is. I'm never looking to him for anything. I think I'm self-made. Too much money can cause us to deny the Lord and think that we don't need him anymore. And you know, it's interesting that here in America, a Christian is far more likely to be worried about not having enough money, even though they are far more likely to fall into the problems that come from having too much money. There's some pretty serious warnings about what money can do to us, okay? And I just I want to be sober-minded about this. <clears throat> Look at what, what Paul wrote to Timothy again in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I want to be clear. Money itself is, once again, it's not being demonized, and people are very quick to point that out when they read this passage. But in our haste to point that out, I feel like we miss out on the real warning that, that Paul is trying to give us here. If you love money, you are opening yourself up to all sorts of problems. The longing for money has even caused people to wander away from the faith, he says. This desire to be rich has caused people to pierce themselves with all sorts of griefs. You know, Jesus himself, he said, you cannot serve two masters. 
Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You know, tragically, I believe many of us choose money over Jesus. He calls us to a kind of generosity and selflessness that frankly is too much for a lot of us to handle. And it's no surprise then that he gives a very famous warning. Once again, people try to explain it away, and and it is important that we understand this in its context. But but still, you probably heard this before. Mark 10, 23 to 27. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Money can do a lot of things for you. It can do a lot of things for other people. But it cannot save you. And unfortunately for many, it's actually a stumbling block that gets in the way of salvation. Fooling them into thinking that they don't need it because they're self-sufficient. But you are not self-sufficient. I don't care how much money you have. If you're the poorest beggar, if you're Elon Musk, You're not self-sufficient. And if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you need help and it will not come from your money. It has to come from the Lord. And this is even why Jesus says here, when when they ask, then who can be saved? And he said, with people it is impossible. There is is no thing that you can do to be saved. You have to understand, a lot of times, especially in the culture Jesus is preaching, and people are thinking like money is automatically just a sign of God's blessing. If you're rich, that means that you have God's favor. And here Jesus is telling them, oh, the the rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. No wonder they were astonished, right? Because they're thinking the rich are God's favorite people, right? He's the one that's, he's showered all these blessings with them. And you're telling me that uh, it's easier for this giant camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich man to be saved? How in the world can this happen? And the reality is it can't by yourself. It just can't. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of good works. Nothing, any sort of currency that you think that you have as a person in this world cannot get you into the kingdom of God. It's impossible. That's why he goes on to say, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, as Jesus was going, and I told you, he was bringing the kingdom of God in, and he's breaking down idols, and, and there, there's, he's, he's bringing truth into all these situations. Ultimately, Jesus knew that his life was marching towards this one crucial event. And it was a very painful one. It was one that his disciples didn't want to see happen. Matter of fact, Peter said he wasn't going to let it happen. And when he tried to stop it, Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. And then later... When it came closer, Peter literally tried to use violence to stop it from happening. And again, Jesus told him not to do that. 
He literally healed the guy that Peter cut off someone's ear that was trying to, to arrest him. And the reason Jesus was being arrested is because he was about to be arrested to go and hang on a cross, to die on a cross, to be executed as a criminal, even though he was perfectly innocent. And the reason that he hung there was not because he had done anything wrong, but rather actually because he had done everything right. He had lived in perfect obedience to the will of the Father, the only one that's ever walked this earth without sin. And when he chose to go to the cross, he went there for you and for me, knowing that it's impossible for us to enter the kingdom of God by ourselves. But God in his power says, I will make a way. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins because God told us that the punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died on the cross in our place that if we put our faith in him, that perfect righteousness that he has is given to us. All of our sin was put on him. As he rose from the dead, he proved that he conquered sin and death. And he, he shows, he's the first fruits of our resurrection, that he, as he moved into eternal life, he says, anyone who puts their faith in me for forgiveness, they're also going to get to move into eternal life. And this is the gospel, guys. This, this is... This is the, the, the gospel that we see of our generous God, right? Because is there, any, is there any picture of generosity that's better than the gospel? God who was rich gave everything to us who was poor, who had nothing, that we could be saved. There's a quote I heard one time, we're most like God when we're giving. That's exactly what Jesus did in giving his life on the cross. In the gospel, we see the generosity of God and because of the gospel, we inherit the riches of God. Look at Ephesians 2, 4-7. He says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Surpassing riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. We have a generous God who's king, owner of everything, and he has made us his children, heirs to this very kingdom that belongs to him. And we get to experience the riches of his kindness and his grace for eternity as we are given life in Jesus. So as I conclude here, I want you to see, man, we should be generous and content people because we serve and have been adopted by a generous God who's given us everything that we need. We don't need to be people that get wrapped up in, the, in the, the same destructive message of our culture trying to look for, to money for our identity or for our joy or for our security. God has already given us all of those things in a way better fashion than money could ever be able to do for us. It frees us up to be people that actually learn to have contentment in a world that is obsessed with wealth. And we see this, Paul, Paul had this attitude, he wrote about it in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, by the way, he's in prison when he's writing this, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. 
They had, I think, like sent him some materials that he needed. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is contentment in a wealth-obsessed world. We don't view money the same way in God's kingdom that the world does. We aren't slaves to it. We aren't controlled by it. The magnetic pull that it can so easily have on our hearts, our hearts have been captured by another, and his name is Jesus. We have greater riches than anything that this world has to offer. If we have worldly riches, we use them for God's purposes. If we don't have worldly riches, we trust in him to provide. And we have contentment knowing that our joy and our value are not dependent upon how many dollars we have in our bank accounts. And so, just as I close here, I want to give you just a couple simple practical things that you can do to be a person that lives with godly contentment in a wealth-obsessed world. And one is that, man, we just need to be able to give God space to impact how we think and feel. Let him transform our minds and our hearts when it comes to this area of money. And this is something that can take time, right? I love how Paul even said, I've learned the secret. It's not something that's probably going to come to you right away, but as you give God space to do this, you're going to learn to be a person that has, that, that can be content in all circumstances, the way that Paul could write that genuinely while sitting in a prison cell. And, and some of the things that you can do to learn this, one is, is saturate your mind with what he has to say, right? Like read his word. Let all the, there's, there's so many things in the Bible about money, so many things, right? Like I've shared a lot of verses with you today. There's way more that I didn't have time to share with you. Let God's word shape the way that you view money and possessions. Memorize some of these verses that talk about money. You know, I still stress about money sometimes, but it's helpful for me to go back and to meditate on these kind of things and remember the way that God takes care of me. And another thing that you can do to to learn this is uh, be a, a person that remembers how God has come through in the past. I think part of the reason Paul was able to get to where he was in Philippians 4 is because he had so many chances for God to just prove himself faithful, come through, come through, come through, right? And that helped him to learn this contentment in Jesus. The, the, the more opportunities you have to see God come through, the more you're going to be able to learn to trust him. I've lived off of financial support now um, at, for over a decade. And, and I've had the, the opportunity to just continually see how God provides uh, for the needs of his children when he's called them to do something. And it's awesome. Like That helps me remember that, that I can trust his word. Another thing that you can do is to talk about this. Like, this is an important area of our lives. Sometimes we get weird talking about money or we, we don't want to talk about finances with other people. Like, this is an area we need to disciple each other in and hold each other accountable in. Just like the same thing, we do that with sexual purity, right? Like, we, we do that with all sorts of other things. This is a, something that has a major pull and connection to our hearts. And, and so we need to be helping each other in, in checking in on this kind of thing and just even... Asking questions about how money is affecting the way that we're thinking and feeling. It's helpful to have others that can check our hearts when it comes to greed. Uh, uh, one other thing I would say that we need to do uh, just practically is we need to invest in what is important. Okay? 
Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure and your heart are connected together. And so Jesus is trying to tell us, invest in the stuff that really matters because your heart is actually going to start to follow where your treasure goes. If, if you want your heart to be totally caught up in this world, then, then store up all your treasure in this world. If you want your heart to be caught up in the things of God, then start investing your treasure in, in kingdom initiatives. And your heart will start to follow along with that. If you're not giving I encourage you to be a person that gives. And, and sometimes it's weird for the pastor to talk about things like that. We, don't, we actually don't talk about giving that much here at H2O. Um, one, most of my money comes from sources outside of you guys. Um, but but the, the thing is, we, we have to talk about it some to disciple you well because the Bible is full of so much stuff about money. It's, it's, such a, it's so tied to our hearts. And... Uh, Man, I think that giving to the church is a, is a great practice if you believe in the mission of the church, right? Like if you want the church to be able to do the things it does, then once again, money is a tool. You're helping empower its ministry by giving to it. Um, but also there's a lot of other like, great outside things that I would encourage you to give to as well. Cass and I b- both give faithfully to the church and we also give faithfully to um, other organizations that are helping advance the gospel, uh, whether that's overseas or uh, you know, do, doing Bible translation work or whatever. We, we like to try and give to things that, that are helping, um, that are close to the heart of God, that, that are helping uh, people experience his kingdom. Um, and so I, I honestly, I think that tithing is a great place to start. I don't think tithing is a New Testament mandate in the sense that you have to do it. God wants you to be a cheerful giver. But if, if 10% is uh, what was given under the old covenant and we have this new covenant that's way better, um, I would kind of look at 10%. This is me speaking. I'm not commanding this to you. This is me speaking. Um, I would kind of view 10% as like a baseline. Like I would never want to be under that, right? If that's what was expected in the old covenant, and I have this new greater covenant, like I, I feel like I can give at least 10%. And frankly, guys, we live in one of the richest societies that has ever existed on the face of this earth. You guys, I know you think you're poor college students. You live better than kings of old. Just because of the time and place that you live. Think about it. You have air conditioning. King Solomon didn't have air conditioning, right? Like, like you, you, can, you can wake up uh, in Cincinnati, and if you want to, you can drive down and be in Miami, Florida by the end of the day. Solomon couldn't do that. You know, like, there, there's so many things materially that you have a blessing to have just because you happen to be born in this country, or I know some of you aren't born in this country, but you've at least had the opportunity to come and study or whatever. We're part of this society that is just obscenely wealthy and privileged. And man, like, like we have a responsibility to, to steward that. Uh, to, to think that we can't even be people that give 10%, and most Americans, even that say they're Christians, don't, is mind-boggling to me, quite, quite honestly, because we have so much more than, than what we need. And... and the, the mentality should never be like, what's the least I can give and get away with it with God being happy? It, it goes back to this idea of God owns literally 100% of my money, everything. And so every financial decision I make is going to be streamed through that. It's not he gets 10% and I get the other 90%. Yeah, maybe I'm going to start with a baseline of saying 10% is literally going out the door to the church or, or to other organizations. But even there, that other 90%, I'm still thinking about how would God want me to use this money? 
And man, we, we, we are people that need to hear this message because you are here in the United States. As I said, you are one of the most prosperous societies that's ever existed on the face of the earth. And you have a great responsibility to steward the kind of riches that most of us have already been blessed with and will probably continue to be blessed with. Um, and then, then finally, I would just say, learn some practical skills for like how to be a good steward. Like, just the, the basic idea of understanding money. Like, I'm not saying that you need to go get a degree in economics or anything, but just like having a, a basic idea of personal finance. You know, like um, understanding how to, you know, save wisely and how to not get yourself into a bunch of debt or how to, to, to pay down your debt effectively if you are trapped in a lot of that. Um, you know, things like budgeting, working through a great budget that you can prayerfully work through with the Lord. That was something that was really helpful for me. Um, because I would experience anxiety sometimes about being selfish if I even like went to Skyline to get a Coney or something. Oh, I'm being selfish. I don't think that God wants us to have that kind of mentality either, right? Like just participating in the economy is blessing people and providing jobs and that kind of stuff. But you, you need to, to prayerfully work through a budget of how um, you can spend your money. If you need help with that, once again, that's why the church isn't just a service, <laughs> We're community, right? We're here to help each other work through some of these kind of things. If you have questions about how to manage your finances, then speak to godly people that do well with managing their finances, okay? Um, I, I would be happy to talk with you about that. Cass and I don't have a ton of income, but we live a great life. Like, we live a great life, and we care a ton about stewarding our money really well. Uh, I'm happy to help counsel you in any way that I can there. I know there's other people in this church that are the same way. Um, and then, yeah, you can always, there's lots of good stuff you, you can educate yourself on. I know uh, there's a book I read personally called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Uh, really good with just this idea of um, knowing how to be a good steward of your money. And, and there's a billion other resources out there that, that uh, me or, or some of the other people in the church, I think, could probably point you to. Um, but as I close here, I think I've said that like three times now. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm being serious here. And, and as I close here, I want to let you know. Like, we, we serve a generous and awesome God, right? And, and, like, we're called to be followers of Jesus. We want to be people that are like him. And, and something that we see in, in Jesus' life is that he, he had a godly contentment, right? He wasn't looking for, for all these sort of outside things to, to show him his value or insecurity. Satan was trying to play on insecurity, right, when he tempted him in the desert. Like, oh, you know, if you're the son of God— yeah, throw yourself down off this, this temple and, and the angels will, will, uh, will save you. He, he wasn't buying any of that. He had contentment and security in who he was. And, and he was generous, right? Like, like, look at this. He's God of the universe that, that gave everything. I mean, not just, not just his life dying on the cross, but even his life living. Think of the way that he served other people. And so if we are going to be people that, that live in the kingdom culture, it is vital that we are people that learn contentment in a wealth-obsessed world and that are generous with the resources that God has given us. Uh, let's pray and then come back up. Um, God, we love you a lot, and I just thank you that you care for us the way you do. Um, I thank you that you clothe the lilies of the field and, and you feed the birds of the air, and I know that you care about us so much more than those things. God, I thank you that you're a healer, and you heal our hearts from all sorts of idolatry, God. And, and for many of us, there's, we probably just even grown up in, in this, this 
culture of having money as an idol or a God where we think it's going to be what, what provides us with joy and uh, with satisfaction and with status and identity and, and security and all these kind of things, Lord, and our, our lives are filled with stress, anxiety, and pride as it relates to money. And God, we just pray that you would clear out sort of unhealthy stuff. And God, replace it with, with godly contentment in you. Help us, Lord, to, to view all of our resources and, and, and money as, as stewards. And God, just help us to be in step with you. Holy Spirit, guide us. We want to be good stewards. We want to be people that know how to use the resources you've given us. So you're worthy of all of our praise, God. You're, you're worthy of all of our possessions. And, and um, yeah, we just pray that you'd be glorified in the way that we use those things. Uh, we love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Amen.